welcome to another episode of 14 Speaks. I'm Jenny Holtz. And I'm Dylan Van Sickle. This week, in honor of Women's History Month, 14 East is publishing our women's issue. So, in honor of our magazine honoring Women's History Month, we thought we'd go back in time to follow someone so trailblazing she got the world to forget about Jules Verne. You know, the guy who wrote Around the World in 80 Days? Well, she did it in 72, in 1889, at 24 years old. Her name is Nellie Bly, investigative reporter and woman who inspired Lois Lane. Also on the show, we'll talk to associate editor Francesca Matthews about her story on women breadwinners. But first, let's take a little trip to Cochrane Mills, Pennsylvania. Elizabeth Jane Cochran was born on May 5, 1864. She was one of 15 siblings, and by the age of 18, she began to write. After a classically chauvinistic article in the Pittsburgh Dispatch titled, What Girls Are Good For?, Cochran sent a fiery rebuttal to her paper's editor, who ended up giving her a job. She wrote under the name of Nellie Bly, and her early reporting focused on working conditions for women and the lives of the lower class. While working for the Pittsburgh Dispatch, Bly wrote a collection of stories titled Six Months in Mexico, where she detailed her time reporting on corruption in the country. The series got her banned from Mexico. After being unemployed for four months, she got a new job in New York City. There, she worked for Joseph Pulitzer's paper, New York World. Her first big story was actually about the Roosevelt Island Asylum. There, she faked she was insane to be committed there to report on the conditions, the lives of patients, and she said she had amnesia, which made doctors say, oh, you're crazy, you're going to an insane asylum. This led to the publication of the novel Ten Days in a Madhouse. It was critically acclaimed, and it led to a grand jury investigation that resulted in better care for those committed to asylums. And that same year Ten Days was published, Bly took her dress, overcoat, and a small toiletry bag and boarded the Augusta Victoria. She boarded with the goal to beat the fictional record set by the book Around the World in 80 Days. The magazine had a Nellie Bly guessing match to keep people interested. People could guess the amount of days it would take her to try and get a free trip to Europe. There were over a million entries. On the trip, Bly took advantage of every single mode of transportation available in the late 1800s, including some time on a rickshaw and a donkey. After taking the Augusta Victoria from Hoboken to London, Bly took the train to meet Jules Verne outside of Paris. He told her if she can do it in 79 days, he shall. Applaud with both hands. He actually said that? Yes, he absolutely said that. That was his exact quote, and I've never heard someone describe it with such pomp. (laughs) So after meeting with Fern, she then made her way through Europe and then headed to Egypt and then the Suez Canal. There she would go from Sri Lanka to the Malay Peninsula before finding herself in Hong Kong on Christmas Day. And um, Cosmo, Cosmopolitan, sent their own reporter to travel around the world in the opposite direction. Their reporter, Elizabeth Bisland didn't bother Bly. Bly wasn't interested in this whole competition. She said, I would not race. If someone else wants to do the trip in less time, that's their concern. After arriving 
arriving to the U.S. from Japan, Bly had a special train from San Francisco to New York City, where people greeted her and celebrated her on her way home. And ultimately, uh, she released a book about it titled Around the World in 72 Days. Along with that book, and the one mentioned earlier about the insane asylum, Bly's life also inspired the character of Lois Lane in the Superman franchise. In the world of journalism, her reporting methods came to be called investigative reporting. Bly was a sophisticated, fact-based, gonzo journalist who wasn't afraid to get her hands dirty and just go into a story. And for that, uh, you know, I think we feel her legacy today. So my mom, she she went to the University of South Carolina. She was studying exercise science. She was like, she always just said that she didn't really know what she wanted to do. She was really active as a kid, like danced, like ran, did all these things. And so she just kind of did exercise science, like a major she thought she might be into. Like, and then I think she just like got into it. And then this woman, um, her name was Anna Benson, who used to, have you ever heard of The Firm? It used to be like this chain of gyms and like a line of exercise videos that to my understanding were pretty popular in like the early 90s. My mom started teaching like exercise classes for just like side money. And then this woman who ran like The Firm was like, oh, you'd be great for, like you should really like train, do this more. And so my mom, yeah, started making exercise videos. The They moved their headquarters to Charleston or their like studio or whatever. I don't know if it was the headquarters. But and from there, she just got into it and started taking on personal training clients, eventually like got a business partner, opened up a gym. And then later on, when I was like in the eighth grade, she like opened up a studio like under her name. That was like basically like Tracy Long is her like stage name. Yeah. So she a studio is like where she produces videos and has tr- personal training clients, classes, all that. Yeah. So that's like you my can still find her videos. Oh, yeah, totally. You can Google them right now. Tracy Long. They're like, I see them in like Salvation Army sometimes or like Goodwill. I've like seen like the like the VHS, the VHS <laughs> on the so on shelves and stuff. Yeah. And then like my dad had a job that whole time. Like he, my dad like worked um, like several different like part-time things. Like also helped my mom like open the business and kind of like helped her. Like he worked there and like did some of the like help do inventory and like help run the video thing. But like his thing, his schedule was always much more based around taking care of my sister and I and like he kind of do whatever so that he could like take us to school and stuff because my mom just had this like super focused career so where did it all begin (laughs) it sort of all began we were talking about our women's issue what we wanted to write about it's what we were thinking and um something like a conversation that i've had with a lot of my friends and um like other women in my life is just kind of like what it was like to grow up with like a mom who was primarily the breadwinner versus like traditionally the father's like bringing home the bacon whatever mom's at home and um that wasn't really the case for me and i think a lot of other people like i kind of remember growing up and i lived in a very like suburban town where you know there's lots of like soccer moms PTA moms like this is kind of a thing and I just remember as a little kid kind of being like it's kind of weird like I don't know my dad's the one who's doing all this like 
you know, it doesn't feel very different for me. But I think growing up with my mom is the working parent and that is my main female role model in life. That's kind of the lens through which I viewed womanhood and what a woman should do, how you should act, the activities you should participate in, the way you should view yourself and interact with the world, which I'm really proud of in a lot of ways because my mom is super hardworking. And also, as I got older, I realized that she wasn't just doing the working parent thing. Like usually as a mom, like she would go out, you know, work these long weeks, come home. And it's not like she just would take a nap. Like she's still then is coming home and doing the full time, like mom thing, like, um, and still like fully doing the like at home parent role and the working role. Because I think we still expect women to do a lot of the emotional labor in relationships, regardless of like how much labor they're putting out in the workforce. And there's no overtime for emotional labor. Like she's not, you know, she's doing all this with the same level of energy. And, and I think that I really internalized a lot of that. And so like kind of going forward as an adult, I discovered that I have a tendency to overcommit myself a little bit and a lot, not a little bit, and kind of really think that it's normal to push myself to like, my wits end with work and friends and, you know, in my relationships, taking on like a lot of emotional labor and thinking like if someone's upset or whether it's a friend, a partner, whatever, like I have to take that in, in addition to all these other things I'm doing. And at the end of the day, like when you're giving the world that much of yourself, you just end up with nothing left. And I think that a lot of young women that I know feel the same way. And so for my piece, I've just been reflecting on that and what that was like to grow up and now be emerging adults. So if you're willing to share any specific stories, mm-hmm. I'm interested in the first moment in your life, in your childhood, that you realized mm-hmm. that you're from Charleston, yes, right? Yes. I don't want to be presumptuous, but it seems like there in Charleston, it would perhaps be uncommon to have that sort of dynamic. But mm-hmm. what's, what's the first moment in your childhood that you realize, oh, my mom's doing a lot I don't know when the first moment I realized she was doing a lot. I can remember, like, I think I talked, I brought this anecdote up in the story as well. Like, teachers being like, you know, like giving me like report cards, being like, as soon as your mom picks you up, like, have her sign this. And I'd be like, okay, that's fine. But like, my dad didn't pick me up. Like, <laughs> like I'm mean, like, when all these people get it. But also, like, in retrospect, there were moments where, like, I could hear my mom, like, kind of breaking down. Like, I, like, moments where, like, she might have thought I was asleep or, like, whatever. And I could kind of, like, hear her cry or like like weird moments in the kitchen where I noticed she's like kind of like just really upset or when she just seemed tired like you could just mm-hmm. I could feel how tired she was like those moments I think as a kid I was like that's normal like that's part of what and that's part of this whole complex I feel like is seeing these moments of what I now know is like not even more than just being tired it's like this really raw exhaustion and thinking like tis the life of a of a modern woman like to to strain yourself and I think that I can't I don't know if I can necessarily pinpoint an exact moment where I saw that but like now in retrospect after experiencing those moments myself which you know it's not always just limited to women I mean men exhaust themselves but I think like this particular like feeling like you've just given everyone everything is kind of specific at least to like myself and a lot of people I know I watch her like get really involved in these people's lives because like they come to her because they want to like get in shape or they want to get stronger or something and then it becomes a thing where like they're coming in you know two hours a week and she just told me like that she becomes like therapist and they're like yeah this whole thing and so and I feel like that's something I was like oh I should do that that's what I'm supposed to do like 
So by like observing your mom take on everybody else's problems and try and be a fixer for everything, yeah. you've kind of come to realize, or I guess you've realized now that that's not the only way to live. Yeah. You yeah. kind of grew up thinking that that was the only way. Yeah, exactly. And I, I'm sure that there's men who like experience that, but I do feel like it is kind of a thing of like the clients that she was talking about and stuff like look to her as almost like a mother figure. And like, she did that for my, like a lot of my friends who, I don't know, she was kind of like everyone's like mom. And I was like, I should be everyone's mom. Like, like I should be my own mom and everyone's mom and like all this stuff. Do you, it's 2019 now. Okay. (laughs) Your mom has been doing this for decades, your whole life. And then some, right. Has anything changed for her or for your uh, understanding of what she does? Yeah. So I think, um, I mean, she still works really hard because one, she, I mean, to like keep supporting my sister and I, obviously, but then also like she loves what she does. I do think my view of it, like just due to like kind of my own personal experiences of like trying to do the most all the time, I think my view of it has changed a little bit. Like I, it's like this weird like juxtaposition thing um, where I'm like, I'm proud of her for working that hard, but I wish she didn't have to work that hard. Like I wish I, you know, like, no, I don't, it's not that like, I wish she could just like put her feet up and like not do Cause I know that would make her happy. Like I know that she likes doing what she does, but I wish it didn't have to be this thing of like this constant drive to be putting out all this energy and like love into the world in that sense. I wish that she had the ability to just say like, I'm going to do whatever and like not really think twice about it or not like feel the need to like absorb everyone around her and I feel like I totally have that sense in my it's something that I like am actively working to like kind of deconstruct and like keep in check is like being like when I'm trying to like relax for like an hour at the end of the day like I can definitely feel a sense of like oh you're not doing anything like wh- like what do you, why aren't you should be doing something like why aren't you being productive or like just because there is an extra assignment or an extra project or like an extra person out there who needs working on I don't have to be the one to do it and like like nobody does like not just I don't want that to be confused with like lack of empathy or something but it's like you can like feeling good and confident in like the boundaries that you want to put up and saying like yeah this is this is what I've got this is what I have to offer and that's kind of it like and there's nothing wrong with that like I don't you know I can even feel myself wanting to qualify that right now (laughs) and like I don't have to like but yeah I think that's definitely giving me perspective in that sense like I guess like I can't really speak to anyone's like personal experience or circumstances or like I'm not trying to like even call anyone out in particular like this is very much my story but I do think that there's probably a young woman out there right now really stressing herself out and really like has a lot of people depending on her or like just you know she's doing a lot and like you can relax just like it's gonna be okay and set those boundaries girlfriend like it's gonna be all right francesca matthews is an associate editor at 14 east magazine thanks for speaking to us francesca and you can read francesca's story and all of the other stories from the women's issue at 14 eastmag.com Thanks for listening to 14 Speaks. I'm Jenny Holtz. And I'm Dylan Van Sickle. 14 Speaks is produced by Jenny Holtz and I. Our managing editor is Cody Corral. Our editor-in-chief is Manny Happold. Special thanks to Francesca Matthews. And our faculty sponsor is Amy Merrick. Mm-hmm.